We only have one Wasatch Mountain range, so um, it's here until it isn't. And um, I hope that it's a, you know, a resource that we can pass on to future generations in a lot of regards better than way, the way we found it. This is the future of Utah snow, a KSL News Radio in depth. It's great to study the data on climate change, listen to our politicians, and follow the news headlines. But what's equally as important is hearing the voices of those directly involved and impacted by these issues. And while I can't talk to everyone who lives, works, and plays in and around the Wasatch Mountains, I can speak with organizations that represent large portions of the public's interest. In this episode, I spoke with Carl Fisher, the executive director of Save Our Canyons, Brad Rutledge, one of the co-founders of the Wasatch Backcountry Alliance, and lastly, Sarah Sherman, the communications director at Snowbird. I hope these conversations bring context and insight into some of the trends and issues that are threatening the longevity of Utah snow. You are also going to hear discussion on a very recent topic, the potential investment of two transportation proposals that would be implemented on SR-210, or otherwise known as Little Cottonwood Canyon. The Utah Department of Transportation, UDOT, started their environmental impact statement study back in 2018, with the goal of achieving the following, and I quote, The purpose of the EIS is to provide an integrated transportation system that improves the reliability, mobility, and safety for all users on SR-210, from Fort Union Boulevard through the town of Alta. Ultimately, the partners seek to deliver transportation options that meets the needs of the community while preserving the values of the Wasatch Mountains." As of the recording of this episode, there are two options at play, a $510 million enhanced bus system with road widening, or a $561 million gondola starting from the proposed Lakai Bay Station and traveling all the way up to Snowbird and Alto Resorts. For more details on the nuances of each proposal and UDOT's future evaluation of one final drafted solution, visit littlecottonwoodeis.udot.utah.gov or follow the link in the show notes. I'm Trencell. We'll be back after this short break. Two friends taking pictures of the rising full moon on a summer night. Two teenage kids doing what teenage kids do. When a stranger with a gun and a death wish changed everything. It was violent, it was senseless, and I will never understand it, I will never accept it. I'm Amy Donaldson, and unfortunately, we're all too familiar with stories about how violence shatters lives. But what we rarely see is how they are rebuilt. In a new podcast, The Letter, we relive tragedy, but only so we can hear the rest of the story, the struggle to reclaim lives, the realities of grief, and the possibilities of forgiveness. I believe in miracles. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are, and this is a big one. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Carl Fisher. I'm the executive director of Save Our Canyons. Save Our Canyons is a nonprofit organization. Uh, Mission is dedicated to protecting the wildness and beauty of the Wasatch Mountains. Um, And really, the organization wanted to take a more 
active role in trying to not just enjoy the Wasatch Mountains, but at advocating for its protection, working on its management and putting policies in place to try and sustain it, kind of looking into our crystal ball, um, realizing the pressures that were going to be coming because I think they realized how magical this place really is. Members of the organization and like board members like yourself range from professors and scientists to active enthusiasts for outdoor recreation. Yeah, I mean, I think we we really try to run the gamut. Um, but so far as our, our board members are concerned, I mean, we saw the writing on the wall a number of years ago and started getting um, former transportation, uh, you know, planners and attorneys involved and engaged in our work. Uh, we have the former director of Salt Lake City uh, Public Utilities who, you know, manages our water supply. Um, we have NEPA attorneys and professionals. Um, but then so far as our membership concerns, yeah, it's people that are out walking, hiking, mountain biking, rock climbing, skiing at resorts, skiing in the backcountry, uh, to professors, individuals, and, and professionals working in this space. I think we really have a broad cross-section of, of the local community. What has Save Our Canyons kind of seen in the, maybe in the past decade up until now, some of the, the big concerns you guys are seeing? Yeah, well, as a lifelong Utah, you know, I remember that the snow uh, when I was a kid, you know, I remember the snow would fall and it would keep falling and like it wouldn't go away in the valley until like March, right? I grew up poking around the Wasatch Mountains and in the wintertime and snowshoeing, it seemed like you didn't have to go far up the canyons. But now we see the the snow level line, you know, we're not getting consistent snow staying in these mountains below 8,000 feet. And I think that has real implications, both from an environmental perspective, certainly from a water supply perspective, but also from a recreation perspective. People are going up there to play, of course. I don't know how you you cannot want to go be in these environments, um, but it's really concentrating where the use is. And so we have more people competing for a smaller space where snow is. That's really increasing the conflicts that we're seeing because um, obviously the ski areas and ski resorts uh, pretty much dominate the north-facing alpine high country of, of the Wasatch Mountains. And, um, you know, I think the dispersed recreation community in particular feels like it's getting the squeeze put on it by climate change and snow just not being where it used to be, but then also kind of resort expansion pressures pushing from the top down, uh, which is really um, decreasing the amount of space where you can consistently find uh, good, reliable and, and safe snow. The elevation level where the majority of the snow is now falling has been pushed up. Have you also seen any trends in the amount those higher elevations are getting and the length of the snowfall seasons? Yeah, I mean, the the length of the season is getting truncated on both ends, right? So the snow is not consistently sticking around um, until a little little later into December, even January now, and it's going away in, in March. Um, but you're right. I mean, the, the amount of snow, you know, I remember those years where we were getting seven, 800 inches annually on a pretty regular basis. And now it seems like we're lucky to get 500 inches. The other thing that you're seeing that really aligns with a lot of the climate science that's come out in the past decade, and, and certainly most recently, is we're seeing the, the snow coming in in like one big dump and like really intense storms, right? And so it's just like, oh my God, it's snowing. Let's go. We got to get, and everybody's doing it, right? Like um, powder powder fever is like, a pretty real thing now because like, you know, when the snow comes, people want to get out and enjoy it for sure. But it is seeming to come in more intense instead of spread out over, over the course of a, of a fall and winter season. Has um, this year's current drought, have you seen any new emerging concerns maybe going into this winter season that people have been talking about? 
you know, the drought as it pertains to snow, I mean, it just means less snow. But I think the biggest concern is have we over allocated our, our water? And I think a particular note to save our canyons, um, you know, we're very concerned about not just the quantity of our water, but the quality of our water. Given that we have uh, a pretty low tech, which I think is actually really cool, <laughs> water system. I mean, basically just snow melts out of the, the mountains. It goes into our creeks. It goes through a, what's effectively a, a charcoal filter bed, and it goes out into people's homes. There's not the need because the water is coming down from these ca canyons well above us. There's not the need to pump water and use like energy to, to distribute the water. It's just we have enough pressure, enough head to, to distribute it amongst uh, out throughout the valley. Um, but that low tech system, you know, with the amount of development and the amount of visitation that we already have in these mountains could mean uh, degraded water quality. Because um, if we have less water, but we still have an increasing uh, contaminant load from from people, from development, from activities going on in these. We are we are actually looking at trends that might um, decrease the quality of our our water supply, which may translate uh, financially to paying hundreds of millions of dollars to upgrade our water treatment systems. And I think part of the inequity in that is oftentimes the people that are causing those pollutants aren't the ones on the end of the end line paying for the upgrades to that system. Uh, you know, the, these algal blooms that are happening that are they're poisonous for, for people and, and for pets. And I don't think we've seen um, the prevalence of those marching up into, you know, our canyon watersheds. But, you know, the Jordan River, Utah Lake, I think it's just a matter of time before these types of things uh, start rearing their heads in our watersheds. And I think we have a big question as to what that means. There's a ton of ripple effects, but if we're consistently, you know, seeing those lower snowfalls, it's accelerating those other ripple down effects that you don't see on a day-to-day -day basis. Right. So we're seeing less snow, which translates into into less water. That That season is getting truncated just by, you know, climate change and warming on the warmth on both ends. But there are a couple other things that are feeding into this very complex season system too. One is if we have less uh, snow and moisture in our valleys, yet we're having more intense weather events that blow, uh, blow storms in, they're picking up dust and dust, dust kills snow. Snow is usually white. <laughs> it, it reflects sol solar radiation uh, really well when it's pure white. But if we get dust on that snow, it darkens it and it begins to melt faster, which means that it hangs around a lot less. And some of that dust is also exacerbated by the wildfires that we're seeing all around. Because when we have barren, um, burnt landscapes, we're going to have more particulates in, in our air which it degrades its albedo is, is the technical term. So we have these concerns where we are just talking about. So why then is it important for an organization like Save Our Canyons to advocate for, you know, preservation and conservation? How does that play in a role mitigating some of these impacts we just talked about? Climate change is obviously a very complicated issue. You know, I think what you've heard about in the media for, for decades, right, is our, our greenhouse gas contributions. Um, but, you know, the, the earth and its systems are, are pretty dynamic and complex. Um, and one of the other contributions and significant contributions, particularly as you look at population growth, is our, is our land use. Healthy ecosystems help scrub some of the greenhouse gases and, you know, sequester carbon and, you know, clean, clean our air for sure. So when, when we're protecting a lot of these areas, you know, we're, we're investing in that natural infrastructure to help take some of these uh, harmful contributors to, to climate change out of the environment. But two, um, 
healthy ecosystems be, beget healthy uh, ecosystem services. And as I as I mentioned earlier, you know we're very reliant on a, basically a natural system to convey our our local water supply. Um, by protecting areas, we're investing in the resilience of these systems. Another one of the big current concerns is transportation up the canyons. And right now, there is two proposals for alternate modes of transportation up Little Cottonwood Canyon. And I know you have been um, talking and helping with a lot of people to voice their opinions on these proposals. So I would just like to get Save Our Canyons kind of perspective. And I think it's nice because you kind of represent almost the public concerns and opinions just by the vast amount of people that are involved in your organization? I mean, we are very concerned about UDOT's Little Cottonwood Canyon EIS, no no question. Um, we're concerned about the gondola. We're concerned about um, widening the road, honestly. Um, we're investing in infrastructure rather than investing in solutions. You know, while skiing uh, takes place in these canyons, these canyons are about more than skiing. They're a natural environment, first and foremost. They're a watershed. We believe those are the two most critical uh, lenses that we need to view this landscape through. And that's simply not being done. I mean, the the question being asked uh, by the Utah Department of Transportation is, how do we get people more efficiently to the ski resorts? And that question doesn't include anything about, you know, our, our water supply. It doesn't anticipate anything about the implications of of climate change yet the rest of the canyon um its ecology and its users have to live with the impacts of of what's being proposed and so those are the concerns as it pertains to little cottonwood canyon but being involved in this for uh, as an organization for for about 50 years now we know that this isn't just about one gondola going up Little Cottonwood Canyon. Rather, this is about a system of gondolas uh, traversing a natural environment, connecting all of the ski areas to one another. Um, and this is just phase one of several phases. Um, and we really feel like given climate change, given development pressures and given these transportation proposals, the natural integrity of the Wasatch is in jeopardy within our lifetimes may see, um, you know, significant ecological and, and watershed collapse. I mean, it was just this year because of storms in the summer months that the water basically had to be diverted and could not be used because of turbidity in, in these canyons because of the storm events. And we had to find other sources of water. That's not something that people really felt, but I know that our watershed managers and public servants did feel that. Um, and I think that's very concerning because we really have a very precious resource that needs to be protected. And it really feels like it's being exploited through these processes. Does Save Our Canyons have a solution in mind to this transportation problem or a preferred one? We do have um, a, a, pref a preference and a vision for this, this um, area. The first thing we really think needs to be done is that we need to understand what the capacity of these canyons is. Because you can't plan for anything if you don't know what your ceiling is, right? And yeah. so we got to identify the ceiling first and foremost. Um, you know, is it, is it 10,000 people at a time? Is it 50,000 people at a time? Is it, is it a hundred thousand people at a time? But I think our ski resorts are probably selling out based on the capacity that we currently have. So the idea of adding more people up there, uh, really causes us, uh, some, some concern. So first we gotta, we gotta figure out capacity. Just to kind of reaffirm the EIS in their research, they didn't do a capacity study, correct? 
No, there is no capacity study. However, we have convinced local governments um, and the Central Wasatch Commission has hired a team of consultants to help kind of help us understand, you know, what the carrying capacity for this area is. And that, so hopefully in the next, you know, 12 to 18 months, we'll have a better idea about some of, you know, arriving at some sort of capacity. So that's really important uh, to first do. But what Sayar Canyons would like to see, um, first of all, we think you can you can utilize the existing infrastructure in the canyons, the existing road corridors, um, and and um, and solve the problem. Um, you could, you know, UDOT says their goal is reducing vehicles during the ski season by about thirty percent. Current vehicular occupancy is one point eight people per car. If we simply required three to four people per car and, and had a policy that that required people to do that, you could take 50% of the cars off of that roadway as soon as that policy went into effect without building a single thing. And it really is the interaction with the buses and private automobiles um, that's causing delays in the canyon. So if you can reduce the number of private automobiles by 50% by just requiring carpools, bam, you've already exceeded UDOT's goal by 20% without wow. spending a red cent. Second of all, you get more people on buses. Um, but rather than telling people you got to drive to the mouth of the canyon, <laughs> To, to get on a bus, we should be bringing these parking, these mobility hubs um, closer to our communities, closer to people's points of origin. A vision that we have is these canyon centers. They would basically have parking, restaurants, and um, you know, food and beverage establishments. They would have employee housing for resort workers, um, and they would have outdoor shops. If every city had one or two of these types of canyon centers, um, you could go there, you could park your car, you could get on a direct uh, bus going to your the place that you want to go, whether it's big, big or little Cottonwood Canyon. Rather than having this continued kind of crush, it's, it's kind of like overloading. You know, if you pour liquid into a funnel too fast, you know, the, it just starts spilling over. Yeah. That's what we're experiencing in the canyon. So if we disperse that a little bit more, um, we're not going to have the, near the congestion. We're going to have a better experience and we're going to have better better um, headways on all of those buses. From personal experience, on a powder day or after a storm and everyone's trying to get up there, that congestion's not only starting from the mouth of the canyon. And like I've uh, would have been trying to get off onto the exit and then get onto Wasatch Boulevard and to hop in that parking ride there to the left to get on a bus, there's been bumper to bumper traffic, just an hour to move 500 feet just to get into the parking ride. And then I'm waiting for delayed bus service. So I think that's a really great idea to take that congestion and spread it out over the valley so we don't have that bottleneck. Yeah, so people aren't driving to the canyons. They're rather they're driving to a place that's much more proximate to their homes, and yeah. they're not. Yeah, I mean, if you have a million people in the valley trying to get to two points, the system's going to fail because there's no way we're building for that. We can't build for that. Anything else you would like to add as far as your vision on the transportation? You know, just going back to some of the earlier comments on just like what's happening with our snowpack and what's happening in the Wasatch Mountains, the, the winter season is getting shorter and shorter. So to build things that are geared totally for that season when summer recreation and non-winter recreation, because people aren't going to stop going there. They're just going to change what they're doing there based on whether it's snowy on the ground or, or dirt on the ground, right? So I think we need to do a better job and be more mindful of all the different uses and, and really um, create a year-round experience for people that want to recreate in the Wasatch Mountains with a keen eye towards protecting what makes the Wasatch amazing. The ultimate question, whether we're talking about this transportation issue or, or climate change, 
I think everyone can agree that there are certain issues and things we are seeing with our own eyes that are in need of solutions. What do you think are some first steps we should be taking or or working towards in the next five, 10 years? I mean, I think we need to continue to press ourselves to really understand and articulate what the problems and plural problems we're faced with are. Um, you know, I think you had articulated what it felt in its kind of very narrow scope um, in this EIS process, but I think that's only a, maybe a tiny, tiny piece of what we're actually confronted with. So I think we need a, a comprehensive and unified problem statement, because if you don't know what the problem you're trying to solve is, you can't come up with solutions. Second, and I think really near and dear to Save Our Canyon's heart and something we've been advocating for for 50 years, if we aren't protecting lands in the Wasatch, we're allowing them to be developed. Do you have an idea, looking at the central Wasatch range, what percentage of land do you think still needs to be encapsulated in uh, either state or federal protection? We have a proposal um, that we've been working on for for years. Um, you know, in the central Wasatch, really from Parley's to you know through Little Cottonwood Canyon, um, it's about eighty thousand acres of public land that we need. We we believe need to be protected, um, and that encompasses about sixty percent of the land mass in that area. Another 20% of that pie is um, protected watershed lands. And then another 20% of that is private private land. So when we're talking about protecting the Wasatch, I think between the land that Salt Lake City through their watershed uh, program, that 20%, and then the 60% that we're talking about in public lands, um, I think that would really, really get us there. One of the things that we've tried to demonstrate is that while we want to see protections, we're also flexible in trying to identify some of these areas that, you know, that should be hardened. You know, the basis of the ski resorts are kind of a combination of forest service land and, and private land. Uh, we, we like the ski resorts. We think they're part of the fabric of our community. We just don't want them to dominate the landscape. Um, but there are some things we can do to allow them um, opportunities to do better um, and manage manage people that are coming into the Wasatch for sure. So by adjusting some of what land gets developed and what land gets um, protected really isn't oversimplification just to say we want to protect all of the public lands in the area. We really want to make the geography and the ecology of this place work for resorts, work for our watershed, and work for our community and all of the uses that you know are, are represented in these mountains. Can you tell us your name and your role at the Wasatch Backcountry Alliance? My name is Brad Rutledge, and I'm one of the co-founders. There was a, a team of co-founders back in the 2012 timeframe that helped come together and form this localized grassroots organization. Professionally, I'm a marketer and a communicator, and so I've tried to bring my skills to the table to help promote and communicate and educate the community and constituents and, and you know people that need to understand our point of view. Why was the Alliance formed and kind of what are your goals and focus? We wanted to preserve the balance that exists within the central Wasatch. World-class skiing, um, world-class skiing at the ski resorts, as well as world-class backcountry skiing. So many, many of our members, including myself, we patronize the ski resorts. We're not anti-ski resort at all. But um, part of the real uniqueness and beauty of the Wasatch, what attracts people from out of state, is that they're not overdeveloped, is that you can have a great experience. Whether you're skiing down from Snowbird, looking over at Mount Superior, uh, you're looking over not seeing 
you know, ski lifts and chair lifts and buildings over on that whole ridge line. And it's beautiful and it's part of your experience, right? It's worth preserving that. Uh, but, it, but as well, there's a lot of people who move here because they want to hike up on their own, um, whether they want to ski and snowboard down or they just want to go on a winter, you know, have a winter outdoor experience. Um, it really makes these mountains unique and, and worth fighting for. There's a lot of different impacts that are directly related to the sustainability of our snow. And so you being someone who has is personally recreating up in the mountains and being a part of this alliance, what are some of the, the trends you are seeing and or biggest threats to Utah snow and winters? Well, let me start with some industry trends that we've we've been monitoring and managing, you know, and we're aware of um, for some time in terms of just the ski industry and snow sports in general. Um, resort skiing, uh, those skiers that go to a ski resort, ride a lift up and come down, um, essentially has been stagnant for, you know, since the 70s. So that that type of skiing activity, um, there's a lot of, you know, ways you might speculate as to why it hasn't grown. Um, a lot of people think it's expensive. It's become, it's priced a lot of people out of being able to enjoy that sport, et cetera, but it's been fairly stagnant. Utah, however, has been successful in attracting more tourists uh, from other locations. And so Utah ski resorts, that industry is trending up. Um, last year during COVID with the really, you know, not a great snow year, uh, was another record year for Utah um, skiing. And so we have to look at, you know, one, we have great, a great resource in terms of, you know, the greatest snow on earth. There's something to that. The powder here is really, is really amazing from lake effect snow and the dryness of it. Um, the accessibility as we talked about. And I think the state of Utah and the resorts have done a good job defining that and attracting tourists from other locations. So Utah ski resorts are, you know, they've been successful in, in breaking that stagnation, you know, uh, number that we're seeing industry-wide. Um, however, when you look at the snow sports um, category as a whole, uh, the only significant growth area is in backcountry sports. So this would mean folks who are not riding up on a ski lift or a gondola or a tram or something like that, they're, they're putting on snowshoes. Um, they're hiking up. Um, they're putting on a split board and hiking up or they're putting on backcountry skis, telemark skis, what have you. So this area of the industry is really the only growth area of snow sports. So what does this mean? Um, outside of climate change, which I know we're going to get to, um, we're seeing growth in Utah's resorts and there's a finite resource in terms of the central Wasatch. Um, skiable terrain um, has to be higher elevations so that the snow will stay and stick. Um, if you're talking about the backcountry, there, you know, there are certain angles of the, the slope that make it so you can ski. If it's too flat, you can't, right? If it's too steep, it's too dangerous. And so there's, there's a limited resource and a, there's limited areas in the central Wasatch trailhead access that, you, that people can go and enjoy that as a backcountry sport. At the uh, ski resorts, we're seeing, you know, limitations in terms of parking spots, right? And the ability to get people to the resorts is probably the, the biggest limiting factor um, you know, that ski resorts are facing, which is why, you know, you're seeing all these pressures to resolve a lot of transportation issues. As we look at, you know, those two trends outside of climate change, you're seeing increased pressures on the trailheads, on the skiable terrain, you're seeing increased crowding, um, and you're seeing, um, in, in a lot of ways, increased frustrations with people who, you know, maybe didn't have this kind of crowding before. We see other states where there's really long lines to get on the ski lift. And now Utah is starting to experience that as well. Um, another trend, you know, in the ski sports industry with ski resorts is moving people away from buying a day pass. So there's disincentives of buying a day pass. The day passes today on a holiday weekend can run over $200 per lift ticket. If you're going up with a family of four, that's quite a bit of money, right? Just for the lift ticket. But what we are seeing is um, increased efforts to promote season passes. Season passes change the dynamic of how people ski. It, it used to be if you invested your money into a day pass, you try to go in and get as many runs as you could that day. You try to be first chair and you try to be done at the end of the day. You'd be exhausted. You maybe didn't even stop to eat, right? I remember that being, you know, my late 20s, just doing as many runs as I could do. The dynamic changes when you can go up and get a couple runs in, right? 
that is changing the amount of cars that are going up the canyon, up and down the canyon. And it's making the resorts, the people who are now investing in skiing with, a, with you know, going to a resort, um, they're able to go more often and for shorter periods of time. So this is impacting um, how ski resorts operate in a, in a sort of a, a different way. And it's, it's worth noting that. As far as, as climate change, so, I mean, this year, everyone has noticed um, this kind of pinnacle the state and the much of the West has reached as far as drought levels. There is statistics looking at the shrinking of the Great Salt Lake, which has an incredible direct impact on our snowfall up in the mountains. What is the impact you're seeing as far as climate change on snowfall levels or length of the ski seasons? You know, I'm not a climate expert, but at the the data that I've seen and, you know, spoken with some experts on this, um, the trends that we're seeing are going to be continuing. You know, some speculate that in Utah, looking forward 50 years, that Snowbird and Alta may be the only really viable ski resorts in Utah because of that. Now, that's some speculation, and I'm not a scientist, but I can say that the trends are all sort of agreeing and pointing to that, to that direction. What does this mean? So for ski resorts, there's going to be increased pressure for them to make more snow. So this means they're going to be pulling more water out, and um, you know, there's going to be pressures to make more snow just to sustain their business model as it exists today. It also means storms will come less frequently is what a lot of people predict. Um, but when the storms come, they'll be more powerful, right? So this will also have um, a negative effect on how people recreate in the mountains. So we already see trends of, you know, traffic pressures, parking pressures on holiday weekends or just regular weekends, especially when a storm comes in and it's been a dry year, everyone wants to get out. That's only going to add to the pressures that people are feeling, whether it be at the ski resort or just, you know, people going out to trailheads the crowding and the demand for those days when there's good snow and the with because the, the skiable terrain is being reduced there's going to be more pressure and demand on the trailheads that um, that still have snow and skiable terrain the increased visitation in the canyons to the resorts to the trailheads what that means is more car traffic going up and ulterior modes of transportation to solve this issue Recently, it's become a hot topic and an important topic because of certain proposals. And specifically, one of the big ones is the gondola up Little Cottonwood Canyon. Can you tell me why exploring these ulterior modes of transportation is needed? Well, absolutely. It is needed. Let me start by saying, if you've been trying to go up Big Cottonwood Canyon or Little Cottonwood Canyon, the last couple of ski seasons, uh, you've likely experienced traffic congestion, crowding, parking on the roadways, which can be very dangerous. Um, frustration and seeing people really frustrated. It's kind of become a dangerous situation. Um, that needs to be addressed. And so from Wasatch Backcountry Alliance's standpoint, we want to move towards a solution to resolve, you know, transportation within the canyons for sure. One thing I want to note is that we have to be careful with the solution that we implement. And we have to ask, what kind of experience is it that we really are driving towards? And, and I would look at it maybe starting from the ski resort standpoint. There's a monetary motive to sell more lift tickets, to get more people to your resort, to, to sell more burgers, cheeseburgers, beers, Cokes, what, what have you. But today we, we essentially have a capacity cap and it's defined by the number of parking spaces in the canyon. And if we just look at Little Cottonwood Canyons, for example, because there's a lot of attention being put on it today, the number of parking spaces available in the canyon, um, and UDOT has an estimate for how many people are going up in those cars, um, is defining the current capacity of the canyon. And then there's a certain percent of people that are taking public transit up to the resorts as well. I really believe that we have a current capacity cap. And then for us to expand the capacity and add more people, that really needs to be justified. If we start implementing transportation solutions that can bring 1,000 to 4,000 people per hour more up the canyon on a big powder day, you know, a holiday weekend, what's going to be the impact and the result of that, right? The ski resorts 
understand their skier experience is very important. And if, if skiers are waiting in line a lot, they're going to be complaining. You'll see it on social media. It's going to diminish that experience. If the ski resorts are able to increase the number of users at their resort in a day, they're essentially adding capacity through transportation solutions, right? By opening this up, then they, there will be an unbelievable amount of pressure from the ski resorts to expand. And there's been studies after study after study and surveys where the general public is against any more ski resort expansion, right? We have to be very, very careful when we start bringing more people up to the resorts because that, that will lead to pressure for expansion. And um, despite the public's uh, view on this and despite plans and, and things like that, we all know that things can change and this can lead to ski resor- resort expansion, which, which we don't want. If we go one of these routes of increased transportation or ulterior modes, there also needs to be policy or or more research done into the cap levels. One of the reasons that we believe people are not taking public transit today is that there's no incentives or disincentives to get out of your personal vehicle. And so that the alternatives that they're looking at, it's it is important to make sure that there's a great deal of thought put into how do we get people out of cars? That's really one of the biggest issues um, with Little Cottonwood Canyon. And to think through that and to have some evidence or proof to back up that that these programs will get people out of their cars and, for example, get them on, you know, to try a gondola. Um, it's important to, to, to prove that out a little bit before we invest, you know, upwards of a half a billion dollars to, to build these huge towers that will forever scar Little Cottonwood Canyon. We really need to have some evidence and proof that we can get people out of cars. So let's talk more about the pros and cons of the gondola. And there are still a lot of what ifs, but one of the interesting points, and correct me if I'm wrong, is that UDOT is only factoring in the use of the gondola during the winter season. You know, once it's in place, what if it could operate year round? Once it's in place, wouldn't it be easy to put a gondola over over the ridge line to Park City? Wouldn't it be easy to connect Big Cottonwood Canyon? What if this? What if that? It's wise of us to talk about the definitions of, of what we're talking about today. So UDOT has defined two preferred transportation alternatives that you highlighted. And within those proposals, the gondola would only operate in the winter months. Okay. So yeah, there's a lot of things possible. They, you know, UDOT has also capped the capacity in this study at 1,000 people per hour. But we fully know that those gondolas, they can put more cars on, they can get more people up. I've heard upwards of 4,000 people. It could be even higher than that, right? So um, when we start building in permanent infrastructure like this, we need to ask the hard questions. What controls can we put in place to make sure we don't ruin the canyon, we don't overcrowd it, we don't send too many people up there that can ruin it. You can define however you like what ruining it means. It can ruin it environmentally. It can in, in ruin it um, from your experience, right? You know, do you want to go up and just be shoulder to shoulder with people? I mean, outside of COVID, that that wasn't fun when you're going up to the mountains to do things. So, yeah, what would you say the pros are to a gondola? We spoke with Chris McCandless um, and Wayne Niederhauser is his business partner. They've invested in a property at, it's called the Lakai property, which is uh, you know, the Lakai restaurant down there off of Wasatch Boulevard. And, um, you know, they have a nice vision for a hub station and uh, the gondola station that would take people um, up the mountain from that point up to Snowbird and Alta at those two stops. The way they promoted it and talked about it, you, know, you can get on there, you can have your Wi-Fi, and um, it's a mode of transportation to get people out of cars, right, which, which can be attractive. It's, it's, it's an idea that, you know, I'm not going to say I hate it, but I, I will talk about I don't think it really is within the purpose and scope of what we're trying to do, and I don't think it's going to solve the problem. And it's a permanent piece of infrastructure that once you put it in, they're never going to take it out. I don't care if it's not working. Um, there's no money to take it out because that costs a lot of money. There's a lot of money investment to put in because they're going to hope to get their investment out of it. But if it doesn't work, it's going to sit idle and um, and sort of change what Little Cottonwood Canyon looks like and is forever. Okay. So let's talk more about bus expansion. What does that entail? The enhanced bus service um, in, includes two components within um, UDOT's preferred alternatives. One is um, roadway widening, 
and uh, the other is to install avalanche sheds. It's important to note that um, the gondola also, uh, UDOT has included that they would like to see snow sheds or avalanche sheds and road modifications as well. These are essentially tunnels that are built at the avalanche slide paths. So that if, a, if an avalanche does come down um, or if an avalanche is threatening, we don't have to stop traffic. We can continue traffic flow and, um, and, and vehicle flow can continue to, to operate. The enhanced bus service um, is kind of doing um, what, you know, what, what I think we haven't done a good job of yet is investing in that service with tolling both both solutions also have tolling at the, the roadway. So if you're going to drive, you're going to pay. And it's it's designed to be a disincentive to get people out of their cars um, to go and ride public transit. Buses aren't, um, they're not shiny and exciting like a gondola, to be honest, right? Um, but when we stop and think, what are we trying to do? Are we trying to give people an amusement park experience ride going up Little Cottonwood Canyon with this solution and investment of taxpayer dollars? Or are people really trying to get to their destination, right? And so if we say this is a transportation being defined as getting people from the bottom of the canyon to their destination, um, busing is absolutely the right solution for it. Let me highlight one thing. When you compare the travel time estimates that UDOT has put together, this would include arriving at the parking lot of the hub station at either you know one of the bus hubs you know hub stations or the gondola Lakai hub station, the estimates that UDOT has put out is fifty five to fifty nine minutes of travel time. So right, you park, they start the clock. There's concerns about creating more congestion points down Canyon, down at the Lakai hub station, for example. But let's say once you get there, um, you get out of your car, you get all your gear, and you go over and get in line, pay, you know, buy your ticket, get on the gondola. We're talking fifty five to fifty nine minutes. Again, using UDOT's numbers, if you were to do the enhanced bus solution, it would take you 38 minutes. So that's arriving at the parking lot, clock starts to your destination, you know, Snowbird or Alta. So UDOT is only looking at stopping with buses today at these two, you know, destinations. Driving your own personal vehicle, okay, 36 minutes. That's at the bottom of the canyon up to your destination. So now when we start talking about the incentive or disincentive to ride public transit, I find it really hard to believe that people that want to go ski at Snowbird or Alta, they're going to sacrifice 20 to 30 minutes to go and park at the gondola and ride up 20 to 30 minutes later. I really have a hard time imagining that. Now, there's another factor with the gondola that's important for people to think through. So Chris McCandless, great guy. He was on our podcast series. He said that there's going to be fee to park there at the gondola pub station. They don't know what that fee will be. There'll be a fee to ride it. Okay. Now we know it's going to be, it's going to cost you one way or the other. You know, you're either going to have to pay a, a toll fee, you're going to have to pay a bus ticket, or you have to pay the gondola, right? Fee. But there is a parking fee there. Um, and there's also a limitation of parking of 1,500 parking st- spots at the gondola hub station. So this will force a significant amount of people to have to park at another bus, you know, lot away from the gondola, get out of their car, get on the bus, be delivered to the gondola station. And then ride the gondola up. So the 55 to 59 minute estimate does not include that, which is a real factor for a lot of people that are going to do it. The bus system sounds like it has the potential to be a lot more modular and flexible. And um, we can test out some of these ideas now with our current infrastructure before we invest all this money into a permanent solution. There's flexibility with busing and transit that way with um, shuttles, that shuttles and smaller buses very easily could be stopping off at major trailheads as well. So right now, um, if you're going up to recreate in Little Cottonwood Canyon and you're a gondola user, you're essentially not really having an option. All the trailheads there that people access in the winter, you're going to have to get up there on your own. Buses offer the flexibility to be able to um, you know, add a stop add, you know, a trailhead only sort of busing service. And there's also commercial vans and shuttles. We have to remember, what's the purpose of this transportation solution? It's not a tourist attraction. It's transportation, getting people from one point to the other. And I just, I don't see that there's enough plan or proof that this will work. And that circles back to our original point of capacity. We don't, we still don't have a plan for capacity, right? So it's kind of, it's kind of a scary place we're in right now. If we don't think these things through, um, we may end up with unintended consequences. 
My name is Sarah Sherman, and I am the communications manager at Snowbird. My first question for you is, what concerns, if any, has uh, Snowbird been seeing in terms of climate change and some of these impacts on the resort? You know, at Snowbird, we're very aware that our future relies on the future of the climate. Um, we are, you know, a, we have a lot of really fun summer activities, but we love skiing and snowboarding in the winter. And um, the health of the environment directly impacts us getting to do that. And so climate change and facing those issues and being aware of them and talking about them and doing what we can to combat them is really important to us at Snowbird. We want long winters. We want consistent winters. We want to be able to rely on consistent snowfall. Um, so we're very aware that it's an important matter to us. And we're definitely doing what we can to see how we can work to protect our winters. So like a winter snowfall like last year where it was it started out kind of rough it was it was low and then it it did pick up at the end um mm -hmm. but coming into the spring and the summer we were definitely below average snowpack when a, when that happens for a resort like Snowbird does that implement certain precautions going into the summer Snowfall obviously for any ski resort is really really important um we have a certain amount of snowmaking we can do early season to get the mountain open. Um, you know, that relies on having water to make snow and that snows great in base building. Um, but you do see a difference in the winters. If you look at the past two winters, we had our, you know, a record breaking interlodge and then another record breaking interlodge. You're seeing more of these storms that come in really large all at once, where before that, this season, especially we didn't have a lot of snow beforehand. So we're seeing, more extreme snowfall in shorter periods of time. Looking towards the end of the season, it then goes down to the health of that snow. What kind of base do we have? The bigger base, typically um, the longer into the season we could go. And this past spring, we actually ended up having to move our closing date forward because the snowpack was melting faster. Um, so it does directly impact us. And, you know, we hope to see next season having um, a healthier snowpack, having more early season snow, more of a base. Um, but we really are reliant on the weather. And that's why it's so important to us to be making action to keep the environment healthy. Do some specific actions and initiatives come to mind that Snowbird is working on? Yeah, I've been really blown away since starting to work at Snowbird. You know, I mentioned I started here just in November, so almost a year. And I think there's a lot of companies that talk about the environment who are like, we're doing things to protect the environment. We're doing things. We're green. We have this green project. But since starting here, I've been blown away. Snowbird really doesn't just talk the talk. They walk the walk. Um, we were one of the first resorts to actually invest in the director of sustainability up here, Hillary Ahrens. I've gone to work with her and she's so knowledgeable, so passionate. Our parent company powder is actually a family-owned company one of the owners lives right up in park city and they're so invested in the environment that they've started play forever which snowbird has embraced and that's acknowledging you know we want to play forever we want to ski in snowbird forever so what actions do we need to take to make that happen and it's a really large initiative that's split between the environment and also our community because we recognize the importance of that as well and it's allowed us to do some really incredible things. Some of the really cool things we've done just this past season was we launched Snowbird Power Systems. So since the 80s, Snowbird has been the only ski resort in North America to have a cogeneration plant. And we actually just redid our entire plant up here. And it allows us to use natural gas to create energy for the resort, 90% of the resort in winter and 100% in the summer. And while we're still using, obviously, a fossil fuel of natural gas, um, it's much more efficient than coal, and it actually helps us remove the carbon equivalent 4 million pounds of coal emissions a year. So um, it provides our electricity, and then we take the heat energy provided by the generators and use that to heat the resort, heat our pools, and we're actually recycling that heat waste and using it, which is really, really cool. Wow. So you're really like self-sustainable as far as you're you're creating your own energy <laughs> is that up in the canyon somewhere that power source mm -hmm. yeah so if you actually go to superior parking lot up here at entry four um it's a new building it's right next to the fire station there you can see the outside of it 
Um, it's right below Mount Superior. And it's really cool. Again, it provides 90 to 100% of the resort's power. And then the waste heat from that facility is used to heat the buildings, the cliff spa. If you're ever in that pool, you're being heated by uh, the waste heat from our electricity. So it's really cool. Anything else you would like to add there as far as initiatives? There's honestly, there's so many. I would say um, I can talk about a few more, but anyone who's really interested should go to snowbird.com slash play forever. Um, I think one of the other things really worth mentioning, really cool small initiatives, but we also put in tons and tons of work. I don't think a lot of people know about um, in kind of mine and water reclamation up here. So Little Cottonwood Canyon has hundreds of miles of mines left from the mining era. And there's a lot of waste that comes out of there that could be potentially hazardous or dangerous. Snowbird has put a lot of resources into cleaning up those areas. Um, We've been working with Trout Unlimited out in Mary Allen Gulch, um, really working to clean up the leftover waste from those mining era times and making the environment clean again. So another uh, important topic at the moment involves transportation up Little Cottonwood Canyon. Mm-hmm. And UDOT has now come to two proposals. Um, actually, the public comments ended today as we're mm-hmm. chatting Friday, <laughs> September 3rd. I just wanted to get Snowbird's perspective on what of the two options, one being the gondola and the second being the enhanced bus service. What is kind of Snowbird's role and maybe as these decisions are made and what's Snowbird's perspective on the the best possible solution? We're very much linked to the health of this canyon. We care a lot about it. We've put a lot of resources into it. And when looking at the EIS Little Cottonwood Canyon decision, um, we take that same mindset. We want truly what's best for this canyon, what's best for its people, um, what's going to, you know, protect the longevity of this canyon and its health. And looking at either the road widening or the gondola option, um, Snowbird really believes that the gondola option is the best, not only for the safety of its employees and its guests by taking people off of the road. You know, I, I'm very comfortable driving in the snow and I've been white knuckling down that road with snow tires, four wheel drive, everything. Um, it can be scary on those days. But also for the environment, Um, looking at the watershed, looking at the options, not just in the next 10 years, but in the next 50 years. Um, At this time, they're not looking at electric buses um, for this proposal. So it would be diesel buses. Um, Expanding the road greatly affects the watershed. And again, you're not taking people off the road. If there were to be a crash or a closure, people taking the bus would be greatly affected. And that safety precaution, you know. Little Cottonwood Canyon is one of the most dangerous roads in North America. So getting people off the road in any way we can in those dangerous days is a huge priority to us. Looking at the gondola, I would recommend anyone who's interested in learning more. um, If you go to the Ski Utah Instagram page, our general manager and president, Dave Fields, did kind of a town hall video with them yesterday. And he is really great at answering those questions people had um, talking about the gondola. But there, you know, the emissions of the gondola are drastically lower, especially when you look at the long-term effects. Um, once they put the towers in, the impact on the watershed and the environment are much smaller. I think people are getting really caught up on the fact that there's going to be a gondola going through the canyon and they might have that obstructing their view. But I think of going up and seeing the road twice as wide with these giant snow sheds over some of the avalanche paths and than the experience of riding the gondola. I've never looked at a gondola anywhere else and thought, man, this is ruining the view. Um, But it is an experience. It is safer. It is more environmentally friendly. Um, So we really, truly believe that's the best option. We'll see, as you mentioned, today's the last day to leave a comment. So we'll see what happens. Um, But I think it's also worth mentioning that Snowbird so strongly believes in the gondola option that we've actually offered if the gondola option goes through to put um, the land that we actually own on Mount Superior and going into Big Cottonwood Canyon into a conservation easement. So that would mean that Mount Superior could never be developed. It would stay as it is forever. It would be safe from development. Um, We don't want to develop it. We think it's beautiful as it is, but putting that legally into writing that it would be preserved for generations to come. One of the 
kind of main concerns people have maybe against the gondola is mm-hmm. the, the price. And you kind of hinted on it. It's it's the permanent nature of it. I mean, there's really no turning back once it's in. So yeah, it is getting someone to be okay with that new view of, of the canyon and what that yeah. what that looks like. So there's some negatives, but there's also plenty of positives like you had just mentioned. But going back to the, the price where something like this is technically really mostly benefiting Snowbird and Alta. Can you speak on Snowbird pitching in to certain costs to install the gondola? Or like, have there been any talks of if someone has a season pass to Snowbird that it would allow them to ride the gondola for free? Yeah. So currently this is a UDOT and government project. Um, Snowbird would be open to discussing some kind of, you know, I don't even want to say what kind of deal, but we're not against working with them um, if they want that kind of support building the gondola. But I would say that we have committed to paying for all of our employees and all of our season pass holders to ride the gondola. So they have not um, released what it would cost to ride it. We don't make that decision. Again, it's a, it's a UDOT, um, gondola. So we wouldn't be getting any of the money from it, but we have committed similar to what we've done with um, the ski bus in seasons past that if this gondola goes through, we want to make it as easy and accessible for our pass holders, our employees to take it. So we would cover those costs for those people. But if you look at the EIS study, the long-term costs of the gondola are actually smaller than the long-term costs of the road. So while it initially costs more money to put in, they actually show the study that after, I don't know if it was five or 10 years of operation, the cost is much lower. And it's also a source of more additional revenue as there could be, you know, a coffee shop or other facilities at the base area and people riding up and down the gondola who maybe aren't just coming up to ski, but are coming up to sightsee or want just the experience in itself. Um, there's a lot more additional revenue that could be made back and put into the gondola, into the government um, from that program. That's good to hear. I mean, there's a lot of what ifs currently in the state. <laughs> yes. So it's like, but it's good to see that a resort, a big player like Snowbird is at least starting to have these types of conversations. We're aware that you can't have an infinite amount of people up in the canyon. Um, our goal is really to get people off the road, especially on those dangerous days. And it's also, I think, uh, worth noting that it's an incredible safety opportunity for us. If you're looking at Interlodge, you know, I was up here for three days this past season and there's some kind of emergency. It's really difficult to get people down from Snowbird or Alta if they need to go to the hospital, if they need emergency provisions. And so the gondola, since it can run when the road is closed, um, is also an incredibly safety benefit for anyone up here in the canyon during those times. Does Snowbird have any idea on setting a person cap on the resort in the winter? Because, you know, if it, if it does get people off the roads driving and into the gondola, that's great. But I think it says like a thousand people per hour and even more maybe. So the current kind of physical cap at Snowbird is the amount of parking spaces. Mm-hmm. Has there been any talks to then put a put a person cap if the gondola went in? I don't know that I have the knowledge to even answer what kind of cap that would be, but I feel confident in saying that we're very aware that the experience up here is affected by the amount of people up here, and we are committed to providing a good experience. So these are things we take into consideration. Um, We're not even sure if the gondola or bus are going to happen at this point, so we're going to kind of keep rolling with the punches. But if the gondola were to go through... That is something we're definitely going to be looking into because first and foremost, um, if our guests aren't having a good experience, if we can't preserve the integrity of that experience, then we're not doing our jobs right. So um, it's definitely something we'd be looking into and looking to problem solve. My last question for you, what role does Snowbird have in preserving Utah's snow and uh, specifically the Wasatch Mountains for generations to come? I think Snowbird plays a huge role in it. And I think that Snowbird takes that position very seriously. Um, We've already talked about our Play Forever initiatives. You know, we work with Protect Our Winters, Breathe Utah, the Cottonwood Canyons Foundation. Um, We last season launched Play It Forward Wednesdays, where every Wednesday, $5 of every ticket sold went to a local nonprofit. 
Um, we host canyon cleanups with Alta. We host a lot of different events and initiatives to help keep preserving our canyons. You know, we we do bring a lot of people into Little Cottonwood Canyon, and we are aware of that, and we're aware of our responsibility to do so responsibly. Again, I would recommend anyone going to snowbird.com slash play forever. Um, it lists just some of the stuff that we've been doing, but we do take that stewardship very seriously up here. Thanks for listening to this in-depth on the future of Utah snow. If you would like to view any of the data referenced in this episode, you can find links in the show notes. A stranger with a gun came upon two teens taking pictures under a rising full moon. But violence is only the beginning of this story. Sometimes I thought, there are no miracles. Yeah, there are. And this is a big one. I'm Amy Donaldson, and I've spent my career talking about how lives are undone by violence. The Letter is a podcast about how lives are remade. Follow The Letter at theletterpodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts.